And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, Southwest Utsira, and North Northeast Utsira. Wind southwest, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling away in East London, but as always, resonating way beyond. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Jessie Lawson. Hello. And we'll be hearing from Museum in a Box, an East London-based startup giving a new lease of life to museum handling collections. And we'll hear from founders of the women's screen printing workshop, See Red, whose provocative slogans still ring true. I'll be playing an extract from Now Then, my podcast series sharing the stories of people who are over 70 years old. And we have the amazing Morgan Laurel in the studio who'll be singing live for us later on. But first, I would like to welcome Jorge Ramos Lopez from the interactive theatre and digital art company ZU. ZUUK that have been producing some highly imaginative and thought-provoking works over the past 15 years and they're just about to launch a new project which we're going to talk about. Hi John, Jorge. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? It's so great to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you with us. So tell us about Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight, your new project that you're about to kind of launch a crowdfunding uh, campaign for. Yeah, so, well, it's a sensitive subject. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of us, as we know, have been affected by um, suicide. Um, Someone close to us or someone that we know. The latest figures say that for someone that takes their life, Uh, up to 134 people are directly affected and sadly is on the rise. So since 2015, um, we've wanted to make this nearly impossible idea happen. And I say nearly because I'm sure we're going to make it (laughs) one day. Um, And the idea is to make all the remaining payphones in the UK ring at the same time to mark the annual peak. And the idea behind the campaign is to engage in a conversation that is very urgent, very contemporary, and sadly needs talking about. We are an arts company. We have always worked with public space, with engagement, and we do believe that extraordinary art does not need to be separated from meaningful, ethical, responsible engagement with people. Mm. We very much don't believe art is to remain in galleries and theatres. We very much believe it's meant to belong to the public space. And how more public could you get than the dying phone booths? Exactly. So I'm just trying to picture um, 
all these phone booths all over the country, they're all going to ring. So I believe it's on New Year's morning, yeah, which is when the highest peak of suicide rates are. That's right. So 11 a.m. on New Year's morning, the whole country is going to have these ringing. 34,000 but- phones ringing. And then for every phone that is picked up, you then experience an interactive sound and narrative artwork about the meaning you put in your life. So the artwork itself isn't about suicide. It's about coming together as a nation to observe the memory of those that we've lost, but at the same time connect with each other in how we put meaning on everyday life. It's also an observation and an exploration of contemporary loneliness and what does it mean really to be human today. So for somebody, yeah, so somebody who picks up the phone will will have this experience. Now, I've tried to do this with one phone booth. Yes. And that was a logistical nightmare. So I'm just trying to... <laughs> we, we love logistical nightmares. <laughs> we've, um, yeah, we tend to set ourselves very hard tasks. So in the past, we've run overnight shows. We've run multi-location live interactive pieces between Brazil and UK. Um, worked with audiences in very delicate and very careful ways. So we do try to sustain that intimacy and that care with audiences and at the same time engage a wide number of people. So one of the things we're very interested in is the space between strangers, especially today when everything seems to divide us and there are less and less public spaces where we can bump into someone that we wouldn't have met otherwise so we tend to look at our artwork as also an opportunity for those encounters to happen. Yeah, because we had you, you didn't come physically on the show, but we did something around uh, a binaural date, dinner dating That's experience yes, that, yes. that you did. Do you want to just uh, r- yeah. remind us what that was? Well, if our artwork aims to engage people in what it means to be human and put yourself in front of a stranger and go into the depths of who you are, what better set up than a date, right? It's like a, an existing contemporary ritual where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to have our hopes on the table and also frustration and, and all those elements. So we open a dinner date uh, agency and we ran it for the whole of uh, November and December last year and it's coming back. And Uh you sign up either individually or as a couple, and we do the rest for you. And a voice in your ear guides you through the whole date. And, um, well, all I can say is please come. On Tuesday this week, we have a free set of uh, performances for people to join in East London as part of the fundraiser for Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight. And on Thursday, we'll be in Basingstoke with Binaural Dinner Date as well. I mean, yeah, it just sounds like a terrifying but, <laughs> but <laughs> fantastic <beautiful>. yeah, experience. <laughs> um, so, ZU UK, what, I mean, there's obviously this link, uh, you're Brazilian, I imagine. That's correct. Yeah, so there's this uh, London-Rio connection. How, how did that come about? What, what have you, how, because you connected, for the Olympics, you did something where you connected uh, right, Brazi- yeah. uh, Brazilian voices. Yeah, yeah. so... Well, I think what's important to say is that I'm one member of this incredible group of people. Uh, the two directors are myself and Percy Jaji Maravala, Percy Jaji from Yemen and me from Brazil. And we've co- we come together and brought two companies together a few years ago. And we have a huge network of beautiful people, amazing artists from the UK, 
from East London as well as internationally who come together with this desire not necessarily to create an artwork but to find out where their idea can go and really push it to the end. And it takes a special kind of person because it's not easy to create something where you don't know where you're going to end up. And, and yeah, those, without those people, we wouldn't be able to make the work we do. So for this project, um, you are crowd, crowdfunding, um, but it's not for the whole project. It's for the first iteration yes. of it. So you're doing a kind of test drive. That's correct. Um, yes. So, yeah, can you explain how that's going to yeah, work? So, so if you're hearing us now, um, if you use the hashtag ZUPickMeUp, that's letter, letter Z, letter U, pick me up, you see we have launched a campaign to raise funds to do a pilot on the 1st of January. So the idea is that this 1st of January we'll do a pilot in East London with hundreds of phones where we'll test not only the platform and, and the artwork, the content, but we will also set up an online map where you can dedicate a phone to someone who you like the memory uh, preserved. So we we'll also have a digital artwork where people can hopefully use it as a way to create shrines of memories um, of individuals that they want remembered. Mm. Oh, I like I like mm-hmm. the sound of that. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic project. So, um, yeah, give us some information about the, the crowdfunding. Like, okay. Yeah. So uh, please join us in any way you can. We run an amazing fundraiser last night uh, with several people helping in whatever way they could, and we're running a second one on Tuesday. So if you look for ZU Pick Me Up or indeed in the crowdfunder.co.uk platform, you'll find Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight. Mm -hmm. And next Tuesday, we are running in our venue in uh, West Ham um, called Gas Station. We are running an evening of free performances, including by Noro Dinner Date, Pizza and a lot of friends. And what we do is we give people a lot of information and we let them help in whatever way they can. And this Tuesday... Even if you're abroad or in another city, we will link everyone up so we kind of can light up this map of everyone around on Tuesday evening helping out in whatever way they can. Great. Um, And do you have some kind of interesting incentives for people who do want to give you lots of money? Yes. Yes, (laughs) we have loads of incentives. So... Um, I, I, I guess I don't have time to go through all of them. The most, but, the most unusual, but, exciting incentives. Okay, that... so there's, there's two, well, there's three then. One is um, uh, internationally renowned DJ Dolores uh, from Brazil has um, offered to create a completely new track uh, to, for the memory of someone. So uh, whoever buys that um, dedication is only one in the crowdfunding campaign. He'll create a track based on their uh, recordings. Um, another one is the online map where you can uh, pledge a phone box and then create a memory of someone. And the other one is artist, amazing illustrator, uh, feminist illustrator Jackie Fleming has donated an original illustration of the project that she's going to sign 10 posters of. I think two or three have gone already. So there's about seven left. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. And I just think this... I. Yeah, I'm st- my mind is still kind of boggled at how this is going to work, but I know it will because you do make things work. <laughs> um, so it's an amazing initiative. Uh, and and what's, yes, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I think what's really important to remind people as well is that sometimes they don't have the money yeah. and they think they might not be able to help, but just send us an email, start a conversation. Mm. We've been having the most amazing conversations just in the last week since we launched this campaign. So please do get in touch. 
Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I want to do the dinner date thing. It sounds great. <laughs> um, now we'll be hearing an extract from my podcast series, Now Then, which shares the stories of people who are over 70 years old. I'll be playing Eva's story from episode two, but I'll let her introduce herself. This is Eva. Franco was a nationalist, extreme nationalist, fascist. The Republicans were in power when the Spanish Civil War broke out, and it was a rebellion against the Republicans. And for a time, it looked as though the Republicans were winning. In fact, it was their bombs that were falling on Mallorca and frightening me, and they were the people we wanted to win. It was a terrible war because it broke up families. And when, many, many years later, I revisited Mallorca, were struck by the fact that nobody spoke of the Civil War. It was like a blanket of silence over that war. People were afraid of raking up old, bad emotions. Excuse me. Hello? I am well, my darling, but I am in the middle of... What do I say that I'm in the middle of, please? (laughs) Recording a podcast. Recording for a podcast. Oh. Okay. Okay, bye. In 1955, I met Igor Ozim, a Yugoslav violinist who studied with my teacher, Max Rostal. Although he was my age, he was already an international soloist, violin soloist, and very worldly wise and sophisticated, good-looking. <laughs> so I developed a crush on him. He asked me out once, but only once. We had dinner together. I was very, very struck by him, but he wasn't very struck by me, I don't think. Subsequently, I met another friend of Ivan's from the Royal College of Music, who was a piano student. And he was also a Yugoslav, but from a different part of Yugoslavia. Igor Osim came from Slovenia, if I remember correctly. And... Dushan was a Serbian. Knowing they were both Yugoslavs, and this was long before the breakup of Yugoslavia, I thought they must know each other, and I went all out to make an impression on Dushan so that he would tell Igor how wonderful I was, and that <laughs> therefore I would get somewhere with Igor. However, it didn't work out that way. Dushan pursued me relentlessly, and I really wasn't interested at first. I kept him rather at arm's length. Although I treated him with great coolness, it it made no difference. He just went on pursuing me. Until one day, he and I went for a walk on Hampstead Heath, and he was telling me how unhappy it made him that the one person to whom he felt closest 
was keeping him at arm's length. So I explained that it was because I cared for him that I was being rather cool to him because I didn't want to lead him on. But after a while, I began to ask myself, why was I keeping him at arm's length? And I began to doubt it. And then we went to the Cosmo restaurant in Finchley Road, which doesn't exist anymore. And we sat at a table next to a window. And suddenly, I was most overwhelmingly happy, and I didn't know what had hit me. What on earth was going on? Why was I so happy? And there was Dushan holding my hand, saying how happy he was now. And I realized that I'd fallen in love. And somehow he'd picked it up. And Igor was completely forgotten. He was of no account anymore at all. I think it was in February 1956 that I suddenly woke up and realized that I was madly in love with Dushan. And this went on for seven months until I had to go back home to South Africa. And not long after, he was going home to Yugoslavia. I was totally overwhelmed by the emotion of feeling in love. Extraordinarily happy, but also filled with a kind of melancholy because I knew that we would have to separate sometime. And yet I knew that that was the best thing because I could not imagine how we could go on forever with this passionate feeling for each other without it just consuming us. I really felt as though I was on fire and that the fire would consume me if, if it went on forever. It was probably necessary for us to part, although when we did, they nearly killed me. We never actually consummated our feelings. I think he was afraid of making me pregnant. It was before the time of the contraceptive pill, which would have made the whole situation much more relaxed. Although I was equipped with contraceptive equipment. <laughs> I suppose he just felt that that might not be safe. I don't know. Our friends could not understand why with such both of us being so madly in love with each other, how we never contemplated marriage. We, we actually never did because we both knew that it wasn't going to work. He came from a long line of Greek Orthodox priests and I was Jewish had no intention of converting and it just wouldn't have worked and we knew that and we were both very sad very sad to part I don't remember what month the serious crisis happened but I remember Dushan being with me in my, in my little room in Hammersmith and we were listening to the news at the time of the Suez crisis and a lot of rabble-rousing was going on in Egypt, um, Colonel Nasser appealing to the nationalist feelings of his fellow Egyptians, and they were all, all very charged up and inspired by what was happening. And I was actually filled with dread because I knew that it would have a very bad effect on Israel, and I was very concerned about Israel because I felt that our very being as Jews depended on Israel surviving. And here was my beloved cheering on these 
Egyptian nationalists because he had very strong Serbian nationalist feelings. He could identify, he had empathy with these people and he was excited for them. It was very strange for me that he, he was so closely identified with the Egyptians at that point. My name is Eva Mayer. I was born in Germany, in Köln, Cologne, on the 24th of August, 1931. In 1933, Hitler came to power, and already that year... My father received a letter saying that he was no longer allowed to practice as a tax consultant because he was not of Aryan birth. And unlike a lot of Jewish people who thought this was a short aberration that was going to blow over, that the German nation which had brought forth so much wonderful culture could not possibly descend to these depths. Um, and they stayed, whereas my parents were not prepared to sit around and be humiliated and insulted and decided to leave. They chose to emigrate to Mallorca because, according to what my mother told me, war had not touched Mallorca for a hundred years and it was known as the island of peace. And it was wonderful. It was the happiest time of my childhood, However, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out, and although it took three years for Franco to win his war, he had already taken over the island of Mallorca within the first year. Bombs were falling in Palma de Mallorca, and my mother sent me to wash dishes to distract me and also hoping that the noise of the dishes would prevent me from hearing the noise of the bombs dropping. So I was frightened. I remember saying, please tell them not to hurt Eva. <laughs> I have evidence that my father attempted to become naturalized Spanish. He had to give a reason and it was that he did not wish to return to Germany. But I imagine that he did not succeed in getting naturalized because I think that was the reason why in 1936 we were made to go back to Germany because we were German nationals. I think we were told to leave. We got onto a German warship, which was rather small and which pitched and made me very seasick. And the sailors put me into a deck chair, covered me up, and when I woke up, I would find a box of chocolates. <laughs> According to my mother, I made German newspaper headlines as the youngest traveller on a German warship. They didn't realise that we were Jewish, yes. They couldn't have done. Mid-ocean, we had to change onto a large ocean liner by climbing up a ladder on the side of the ship. And the whole atmosphere changed because the sailors were absolutely lovely to, to us. But on this ocean liner, which was, of course, much larger, there were many German expatriates going back home to Germany, and they must have realized that we were Jewish, and they looked at us with unveiled contempt. And although I was only four, not quite five years old, I was puzzled by this, and it hurt me, and it made me shrink inwardly. I couldn't understand it at all. We disembarked at Genoa and we travelled on the train, locked up in our, in our particular coach, 
not being able to get out, not being able to have any food or drink, except in Switzerland where somehow or other there were vendors who came to the window and sold some fresh milk to my parents, which was the only time in my life that I enjoyed drinking milk. When we arrived in Munich, according to my mother, there were banners announcing Welcome to the refugees from communism, which of course did not apply to my parents, who had travelled in this locked coach. My father was immediately arrested for the crime of being Jewish. My mother, in the meantime, took me to her hometown where we spent the night at her parents, and I felt very happy there in their cosy home. And the next morning was my birthday, and we had to leave them in order to rejoin my father, who had meanwhile been given the choice of going to a concentration camp or going direct to Italy with just a train ticket for the three of us and nothing, no possessions other than the clothes we stood in. Did I say it was my fifth birthday? We lived in Milan for about two months and then had a letter from my father's aunt Ilse in Johannesburg, who had written to say that she had made it possible for us to emigrate to South Africa, and with the help of financial aid from some international Jewish agency, my father obtained a passage for us on the Duilio, an Italian ocean liner, which was sunk during the war by the Allies as we read in a Johannesburg newspaper much later. But it got us safely to South Africa. If you want to hear more from Now Then Podcast, or if you know someone who you think I should interview, you can find out more at nowthenpodcast.org. And that sounds like it's just the tip of the iceberg for Eva's life. <laughs> it sounds like there's many more stories yeah. in there. <laughs> She's lived through basically all history. So that's like the first half. So if you log on to their website, you can hear the second half as well. Great. So you've been listening to Eastcast on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show. And you can listen again or listen to a whole back catalogue of podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Just search Eastcast Show London. And also everything that we've ever done is on eastcastshow.com. So now for something completely different, which is what we love on Eastcast. Um, I went to meet George Oates and Charlie Cattle-Killick uh, at their studio in Hoxton. Um, I worked with them on the Seeing Red project that we'll hear about later. But I was intrigued to find out more about this rather nifty idea of taking exhibits out of the museum and then using sound to bring them to life. If you imagine a classroom receives a brown paper package tied up with string and inside there's a magic box and a set of museum objects that the kids can play with. It's basically a new play on the old idea of a museum handling collection where a museum would send a box of original objects into a classroom for, say, a week 
and let the kids play with the stuff and think with them. But Museum in a Box can sort of like radically increase the distribution of that kind of idea. So instead of sending one box to one school, you know, theoretically we can send a thousand boxes to a thousand schools instead. My name's George Oates and I'm the founder and CEO of Museum in a Box. I am Charlie and I'm a designer here at Museum in a Box. There's some really simple tech. So each of the objects in a collection has a little metal sticker on it and you can put that on the box and then it will tell you a story about the object. So it's about touch and listening and stories and interaction. And it's a response, I think, to the sort of experience of digital cultural heritage, which can be really unsatisfying and dry. And also, just very basically, I think the digital experience just negates two of our major senses, which are touch and hearing. And, you know, kids need to touch stuff in order to understand them. And also, in in a museum setting, stuff's under glass. And, you know, you see all these sort of squidgy fingerprints on, you know, the glass cases where kids are like, I just want to touch it, and, you know, they can't. By using 3D printing or even just putting images on postcards, you can allow kids this sort of agency to touch stuff. And what we're finding is that kids really like it, uh, very simply. Uh, We're looking at a box in front of us now, and it's about 15 centimetres long and 10 centimetres wide and it's very simply designed uh, intentionally it it can come in either acrylic or wood Um, they have holes at either side to allow the the sound to come out and a funky set of LEDs on the front uh, which show you basically when it boots up that it's ready to go and ready to use and then a big old volume knob where you can plug in a bigger speaker if if it's necessary in in a big space and we've got a power and USB outlet on the back um, and that is it. <laughs> it's yeah, intentionally very sort of simply designed to make the interaction incredibly obvious and for that we, we, we have just a big circle that's laser cut um, on the top so people know exactly where to put, put the objects. When you put the object on the box there's an NFC tag underneath the object and hidden underneath that circle on the top of the acrylic box is uh, an NFC reader and amongst other things we've got uh, a Raspberry Pi hidden inside the box the PCB array, a volume knob, amplifier, the speaker, of course. So you basically put the object on and it, it acts. Can you, it? can you do that? Yeah, sure. Okay, ready to go. I am Zeus. <laughs> okay, so we've got a rather um, grand-looking Zeus here in a slightly exposed position. He's um, standing up proudly and extending his arms. Um, and the funny thing about this is he's he's looked like he should be clutching something, but... Uh, it's not the fact that the 3D print's broken, he just doesn't have anything in his hand. And so this print explores the story of that missing object. No one knows for sure, but there's a clue that might help us guess. Look at his right hand. Doesn't it look like he should be holding something? There are two Greek gods we often see with this pose. Zeus, the god of the sky, who holds a thunderbolt, and his brother Poseidon, god of the sea, who carries a trident. It's a long and sordid tale. Uh, I've worked as a software designer for about 20 years now, and I've got quite a lot of experience with really big systems of content. So I used to work at Flickr, which has billions of photographs on it now, at the Internet Archive, which is a non-profit in San Francisco that also has bazillion things in it. And 
I've just become interested in the cultural heritage sector and the challenge that it faces broadly around access to materials. And, you know, the chance, the offer that digital provides is that you can theoretically share your collection with anybody in the world because they can just go to www whatever and look at your stuff. But I'm also conscious of the challenge that these digital systems express themselves in terms of metadata, which is often really boring. You know, this is one foot high, this is made of, you know, whatever. And there's no, there's no blood in it in the description of these things. But the genesis of, I think, the idea was meeting a chap called Tom Flynn, who used to be based in London, and he and I shared a, a lot of sort of sensibility around the fact that there can be lots of descriptions of a museum object. It doesn't just have to be this official version, but there are many perspectives. And he and I collaborated on a, a residency at Somerset House in 2015 where we had this thing we called the Small Museum. And it was a two-week-long residency, and our collection was 3D-printed objects from the British Museum collection. So the premise was there was a table in the museum that we covered with brown paper every day and we would sort of draw an object out of the hat and use that as our object to focus for a single day and we would try to design a little exhibit about that. And it was a public space so anybody could wander in and have a look at what we were doing and the public really enjoyed our sort of curatorial approach which was about how this object made its way to the British Museum, you know, where it came from, who brought it, when it was and that kind of stuff. You know, there were sort of a lot of hushed tones about the British Museum never says anything like this, and, you know, people were really intrigued by that. But one of those days in the residency, I knew I wanted to experiment with this idea of the Internet of Things, which broadly means what happens when you put an object onto the web, onto a network. Like, how many stories can you attract to that one object? How many stories can it tell? At the small museum, we did our very first experiment where we stuck a little sticker on all of the objects and made this really basic reader interface. And when you booped the object, it would just read you the wall label in a really computery voice. <laughs> but even that very simple, very first instantiation of this idea, people really enjoyed it. And we just sort of thought, oh, this is good. We should probably keep doing that. The concept also brings together a whole bunch of thinking that I've been doing for like 10 years now about how to increase access. And I'm kind of enjoying the retro approach that we've been taking to sort of curating very, very small sets of things that have great stories and you can touch them. Like it's, a, it's like a black and white contrast from the digital experience of, you know, the British Museum saying, you can explore two million things versus here's a box of 20 things that you can listen to and touch. Eventually, we're hoping to construct it so the kids can make the boxes themselves. You know, we're happy to sell a finished box to whoever wants to buy one, but we've also heard from teachers pretty loudly that they're really interested in the kids actually constructing and fabricating their own stuff too. So, you know, we're working on another version of the product, which is called Make Your Own Museum in a Box, where we might sell the sort of schematics and the componentry for the box itself and also a bunch of the little metal stickers 
And so the kids can make a museum about whatever they want, you know, a museum of my grandma or a museum about lizards or whatever it is. But they can also actually learn the sort of basics of laser cutting and, you know, how to solder some hardware. Or We're not really wanting to go too far down the manufacturing route. We'd much rather sort of see if we can figure out a way to let the kids learn about LEDs while they're making a box about lizards, <laughs> you know. If you'd like to find out more about Museum in a Box, simply visit museuminabox.org. Morgan is looking almost ready to sing for us. But before she does, we just wanted to let you know about our upcoming event, East Cast Away. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so we're taking East Cast out of the studio into set space on Dawson Lane in Dawson uh, for a listening lounge. What's a listening lounge? Um, we've kind of made it up, but what it is, is we all kind of sit together, we've got lots of cushions, we've got friendly people, um, and we listen to audio gems from local radio makers. Um, and we could, we've curated an open mic? No, no, what I, what I meant, <laughs> it's like an open mic, but yeah, for radio, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. curated. So it, we get submissions, people submit their work, and so it's a chance to hear your work so it's an it's like an open mic in a way yeah. but it is a curated one you can't just bring your usb stick but you can email us you can ask to be yes <laughs> um and we've also got some special live performances as well so it's going to be a great night it's next wednesday the 20th of june starting at 7 p.m it's three pounds on the door you don't need to get a ticket just turn up um and there's a facebook event if you search east cast away and east cast is one word space away then you'll find all the information and you should come see you there um, and now we've got Morgan, Morgan Laurel in the studio with us. Hi. Hello. Hi. Morgan is a musician, photographer and blood cancer researcher based in East London. It's so a bit of a mouthful. All the things. <laughs> um, so when did you start singing, Morgan? When did I start singing? Um, probably in church. No, that's a lie. I've always <laughs> been singing. I'm, I have a musical family, so my mum can sing, my dad cannot sing but he loves vinyl he's always been obsessed with vinyls lovers rock so we've been a singing household from early yeah. how would you describe your sound where does it come from my sound so i love to listen to jazz and i love because of just the tone of female singers jazz singers and just the melodies and stuff but i'd say inspiration i'm not too sure what i'd call myself fusion alternative i guess alternative fusion jazz, jazz. there we go church church pop <laughs> feeling a bit of thinking there yeah. what artist do you like what artist do i like i love ella fitzgerald i love sarah vaughan i think she's my fave at the moment yeah lifetime favorite so you started singing when you were super little yeah and now you're you started producing some yeah, music. small well. How is not it happening? Fully claiming the title, but I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what you? How does that work? How does that work? So at the moment, um, I'm creating music through an organisation called Route 73. So it's a it's a community project where these it's run by these guys that facilitate music for the community. So in East London, so I don't know if a lot of the community centres have been closed down and there's not many community spaces. And what they do is they have a studio which they've actually built themselves, wow. and they get young people to come in and record their projects, film their projects, take pictures for their projects, and release their projects. So at the moment, um, that's where I'm working. Yeah, so I'm working on a project hopefully soon. That was amazing. <laughs> and what are you going to sing for us today? Um, so I'm going to sing two tracks, Only Fit and I. I'm, so these are the two of the songs that I've done with Route 73. So the first one is called Close to You. Close to you. 
As crazy as it may seem, I'm not too hard to read. There's too many ifs and maybes, not enough guarantees. Well, if no one's in the running for the bar, love to take a swing might even graze you. was room in here this next one is close to you Son, love is the key But that radio stays sad Stuck on repeat Yeah, I might be another one Of the above But the truth is you put down The third degree Ooh, baby, love's wasted I'm stalking you, temptation Ooh, surely He's taking so sweet off persuasion Close to you, to me Between, oh no Close to you, to me Between, oh no Ooh, oh, oh no. Yeah, 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 yeah No, 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 no Ooh, you're that vibe is sweet, cool, carefree. That vibe is key. Hit you with the load down. Tell me if it goes down. You be spinning news round. I'm guess I'm in your hometown. Now you playing playground, breaking all the rules now. Stop. 
stalking you, temptation. Ooh, surely he's taking so sweet alpha persuasion. Close to you, to me, between on. Close to you, to me, between on. You're bothering me, that I'll be key. Cool, carefree. That vibe is sweet. You're bothering me. That vibe is sweet. I'm cool, carefree. That vibe is sweet. Thanks. Woo! <laughs> That's it. It gives me like shivers down my spine. Oh, yeah, thank you. So nice. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you and my mum it's just the fan club it's getting, it's getting wider um, who made the backing track oh so who made the backing track so it's made by a guy called Asha so Kosha he's also a rapper and he's also one of the creators of Route 73 so yeah they also produce they also mix and master they do everything so they did that track too so yeah um, hopefully there's more so you're a a scientist and a photographer and the singer yeah how does Gosh. it how does it work <laughs> no sleep that's how it works no sleep and a lot of just yeah discipline I'm learning to work on like not motivation alone so yeah I write loads of to-do lists yeah <laughs> loads. um yeah. how do they do they all connect in your no okay so maybe music and photography because where I have singer friends maybe it's like oh hey I need press shots or like hey I have a show so yeah the two are quite interlinked, but yeah, no, not science, not not in the in the lab, yeah, <laughs> not so much. So, what interests you about music and photography and science? Is it, that's what I mean? Is there like something that draws you to them? I think it just they they all individually just edify different parts of me. So even when I took out, I took a. Uh, an academic break to do music I was like oh I missed the intensity of the reading I missed the science the learning so I've just accepted that I am all these kind of things and I just kind of do what I enjoy and when I get sick of something I'm like okay I got this so yeah <laughs> so that's how it kind of works yeah um, so if we wanted to find out more about there's a lot of things to do so first of all if we want to hear more from you so if you have to, if you want to hear more patience I guess because nothing's out at the moment <laughs> but um I'm on socials so I do have socials so Morgan Laurel on everything and that's Laurel with L-O-R-E-L-L-E and that's so, yeah. on your SoundCloud that's yeah SoundCloud Instagram Twitter if that's your thing and yeah what else is there that's it right I think that's, yeah, that's you've it. got that <laughs> and then Route 73 how do we find out more about that um anywhere Route 73 and they're based in Total Refreshment Centre so please if you have a project or you're thinking about doing a project shout out to them they're an amazing bunch of guys mm. thanks so much for coming in will you? oh thank you we've had them you. on the show as well have you yes yes we have Great. we yeah. have they, we are we are fans <laughs> love that thank yeah. you so much thanks again um, so on to something else. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the, as the VNA uh, prepares to open its East London outpost um, in the Olympic in the Olympic Park, um, they've actually taken over a small space in Poplar called the Lansbury Micro Museum, and their current exhibition is called Seeing Red, and it's a collection of posters from the women's printing workshop Sea Red, who were very active members of the of London's feminist movement in the 70s and 80s. And here are the two founders to explain a little more. 
why we chose screen printing is because it is so accessible. And we could have then a sort of like a portable workshop. We could take our equipment with us and set it up anywhere. And uh, I think one of the main ideas, really, or desires, was to share our expertise with other women so that other women could make posters around issues that were important to them and to demonstrate that it was actually, on the whole, very simple to do. Myself and Julia Franco, who was the third co-founder of Sea Red Women's Workshop, saw an advert in... We can't remember which feminist magazine. Was it Spare Rib? Was it Red Rag? That just asked, would any women interested in looking at printing, screen printing, women's image, and forming a group around that, come along to this meeting? And we went to the meeting and we met Prue. And to cut a long story short, eventually we ended up calling ourselves Sea Red Women's Workshop and deciding to focus on doing screen printing as a method of doing propaganda for the women's movement. I'm Bruce Stevenson. I'm a founder member of Sea Red Women's Workshop. I'm Susie Mackey. I'm a founder member of Sea Red Women's Workshop. I was working within my local community and working with the local tennis association and other affiliated groups. And so we're starting to make posters for them. And then I became very involved in the women's liberation movement and it was a natural progression to go on to make posters for the women's liberation movement. That's how I became involved. I also went to art school and did a certain amount of printmaking at art school. I then had the sort of expertise as well as the desire to, to use posters as a way of influencing or getting messages across. It was very much the ideas and the early days of feminism, 74, that inspired us. Julia and I both went to art school and did screen printing there. So we wanted to use what we could do to further the cause of the women's yes. movement. And uh, I think one of the main desires was to share our expertise with other women so that other women could make posters around issues that were important to them and to demonstrate that it was actually, on the whole, very simple to do. It was very much about sharing the technique. It was very much about the politics and the message that we wanted to give. Um, over 45 different women worked in Sea red from 1974 to 1990. So we had a lot of turnover, but that was how we wanted it to be, basically. That it wasn't just us three, or even us four, because Sarah Jones joined us about six months into starting Sea Red. It was very much about how we can work with the current ideas, and that's why the methods changed as we went on. We, we worked as a collective, so there was no hierarchy, and no individual took credit for any of the posters. They were all produced as a group. So um, I worked with Museum in a Box to bring the Sea Red posters to life through a series of talking postcards. And here Prue and Susie talk about one of their posters called Protest. We ourselves were angry and we wanted to produce a poster which portrayed that anger. And so the vibrancy of the colour is really important. The colours that come out of the back are coming out, you know, 
like sort of rays or something. And then the woman there is, these are all the things that she's angry about. She's angry about how she's portrayed, that women are only often seen as like a beauty queen or how they look or their domestic capabilities or whatever, or as a bride or as a sex object. You have to go through agonies to keep yourself looking good, so you have these curlers with great pins sticking into your head. All of that we wanted to get across in this poster. Getting angry about something and organising and protesting is, yes. is back on form, really, yes, isn't it? Yes, we need it? to be angry. We should uh, be angry. We have yes. lots of things to be angry about. I always saw it as vomiting, the images, but it could just be sort of Shouting. sounding yes. off or shouting or rejecting. The screen printing at the time, and it's very hard to think of it now, was the quickest way to get a message from your head out onto the wall or onto fly posting. Believe it or not, it was, and we could do it overnight. We could put up a screen, take it home, paint it, print it the next morning, and we'd have, I think our maximum run might have been 200 over a whole day, possibly. Not exactly speedy, but good quality stuff. Yes. And also, Mm. we Mm. wanted to get the images out there. We weren't about, you know, this has got to go in a frame, or it's got to go into a, a museum, or it's got to be precious. And we sold them really very reasonably. So then we took these postcards, uh, plus a museum in a box speaker, to the local secondary school, Langdon Park, and talked to some of the students about what they thought about this, this poster protest. The thing that makes me angry is, like, you know places where there's, like, war and, like, sort of, like, corruption, like, places like Israel where there's loads of fighting and conflict. It makes me angry that places like that, like people in there, like say Muslims, that they're targeted when it's nothing to do with them. You know how a lot of soldiers, they restrict uh, Palestinian citizens from entering certain areas and they're just taking over land bit by bit. And there's some like governments in different parts of the world who are like corrupt and people living in those countries, they have nothing to do with that, but they're being affected the most. And the governments aren't, but they're causing everything. In terms of long-term anger, I don't think anything makes me angry in that sense. But in the short term, there's so many moments where, I guess, I have a very hard time understanding people, where where they come from, because when they say something, I guess I tend to make the problem of just um, just assuming what they mean by it, and I tend to get angry by those assumptions. Don't judge a religion of the actions of people, and don't judge a person of their religion. Tolerate others unless you want to be not tolerated. I think the important message should be to not follow, actually think freely and be open-minded to all the possibilities that there could be. I guess, say, for example, somebody only watches feminist protests and then they listen to the feminist message, however, they don't listen to the other side and they don't understand why there's backlash in the first place. So you can see a curated selection of Sea Red's posters and listen to more insights and observations from the Sea Red founders and Langdon Park school children at the V&A Lansbury Micro Museum in Poplar. And it's open every Saturday until mid-September.
So it's time for us to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. In the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. And don't forget to come to East Cast Away next week. Yes, do come to East Cast Away to listen to all sorts of audio bits and pieces from producers and makers from... Actually, it's become nationwide, so it's not just local. Yeah. Um, uh, to play us out is Full Circle by Morgan Laurel. Thanks for listening and join us next month on East Cast. You started, you're starting fire replaying this game of tires who on to the limit I proclaim we take without refrain all past delivered and replayed we We've come full circle 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 Yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah.